0: Acts chapter 18. You can turn to Acts chapter 18 and then put your finger there and flip over and put your other finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you recall, Acts is the in a sense, the historic narrative of the growth of the church in the New Testament. And you can place the epistles uh, into the slots of what is going on in the book of Acts. And here you have uh, Paul going to plant a church in Corinth. So we can look at the early portions of 1 Corinthians and see how this is being played out. Acts is the narrative and corinth corinthians is the epistle that is written directly to uh... that growing church and, and struggling church um, corinthians uh, the church at corinth had a lot of questions they were new coming right out of paganism uh... so apparently they sent this long list of questions to paul and uh... he is uh... responding to them so if you're able would you stand with me and i'll read from acts chapter eighteen Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit down upon us, that our eyes would be open to the things of your word, that our hearts would be receptive, that you would close out the the struggles and uh, voices of the weak and earlier in the day, that we might hear only yours. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts chapter 18, I'll read verses 1 through 11. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Tisius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were, being, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, I want to address a certain aspect of our passage this morning. There are a lot of things that we could spend our time on in, in this passage. But the thing I want to focus upon is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is a fact. How we understand the outworkings of that, of his faithfulness, varies. But God's immutability, his unchangeableness, you understand that? We change if, uh, you know, I burn my breakfast, I might have a bad day. If I didn't burn my breakfast, I might have a good day. So I am very changeable. God is not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in that unchangeableness, that immutability comes out of his character and out of his person. So are there things that God can't do? Well, certainly there are things that God can't do. He can't lie. He can't change his promises. He can't change his character. Um, those are because of who he is. He is not tainted by sin as we are. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. God is incapable of going back on his promise. As an example, when he makes a covenant, he swears by whom? Himself. Why? Why? There's not a name greater than, than that to swear by, okay? So you see, there's nothing greater than our Lord. Now, we understand that each of us faces uh, situations, in difficult situations. Some of those things that we go through in life seem like they may overwhelm us, seem like we have reached the point that I, I cannot take it anymore, I cannot move forward. Uh, perhaps this is beyond my capacity to deal with it on my own. Maybe even sometimes it's too hard, it's too big, Often we want to shrink back, maybe even hide from those things in life. The Lord never does that, nor does the Lord call us to something that he does not provide the ability and strength and the presence of the Holy Spirit to see it through. I refer you to Paul's trip to Corinth. Now the last time we saw Paul in chapter 17, he was at Athens, the intellectual center of the world. Remember you had the Epicureans and you had the Stoics and, and they were the major philosophies at that time and Paul comes in, no intellectual slouch, and he reasons with them and challenges them and talks about the, the plaque to the unknown God and he begins there and makes the turn to the God of creation, the one who calls them into a relationship. Um, Paul leaves Athens, probably not as excited with the outcome as he could have been i mean there is a church that's planted in athens and it does continue for some time but it was tough going there it was tough going at athens now at corinth it was a completely different mindset there were no philosophers at corinth there were pagan temples the temple of aphrodite where you had a thousand prostitutes both men and women plying their trade every night and you could go up to the temple and worship at the temple with the prostitutes uh at corinth if they had their head down uh, at athens if they had their head knowledge down at corinth they had sin down to an art okay and it wasn't held within any certain caste or certain economic strata it was across the board they were good at it everybody pretty much participated in it in fact the actual name corinth became synonymous with immorality now, if I said to you today, now, now uh, uh, Bubba over there in the corner, he's a Corinthian kind of guy. That would mean that he is a moral degenerate, okay? Or if that's a Corinthian type of girl, you would know that that is a prostitute, okay? That's how synonymous the name and word Corinthian became. And in fact, the verb form of Corinthian, Corinthia, to Corinthianize, meant to go a-whoring, Okay? And sailors were sad if they were on a trip and didn't get to stop at Corinth because it was a happening place uh, for that kind of activity. Here, Paul brings the gospel to them. Now, Corinth was politically and economically the main city of that area. And if we look geographically, there's, there's an there's this little isthmus, okay, uh, that, at Corinth. And it's a little bit of land three and a half to five miles across. And on one side of, of uh, this isthmus is the Aegean Sea, and on the other side is the Adriatic. And trade would come along, and you could go down an extra 200 miles and go a, a, around the Cape of Melee, but it was a treacherous journey. They didn't have ships like we had, so they never went far from the coast. Uh, But it was an extra 200 miles. But if you put in at Corinth, you could unload your ship, put all your cargo on slaves, slaves would carry it across the isthmus, and you could load it onto another ship, okay, instead of the treacherous 200 extra miles. Or some ships would even pull into the harbor and be put on rollers, and they would pull them across that little bit of land into the other sea. So this was a very important place for trade. It was the political center of the entire geographic area. At the time Paul shows up, it had a population of about 200,000. And it is a prime location, as I said, for sin. And it had a very eclectic population. There were Greeks and freedmen, Roman army veterans, businessmen, government officials, Orientals, and a large number of Jews. The other thing that was, it was known for were the Pan-Isthmus Games, no second only to the Olympics of that day. So, now if you think Paul had a rough time with the intellectuals, he's got a rough time with, I, I, you know, I don't know how, how, hopefully I've put it uh, clearly enough without being indelicate, but they glorified the body there, and they were having a whole lot of sinful fun. So... Let's not forget that Paul has met an increasing opposition to the gospel as he has taken it out. This is his third missionary journey. Paul has been stoned, he's been left for dead, he's been flogged, he's been put into prison. He has faced persecution just about everywhere that he has gone. But none of that has seemed to hinder his influence or his enthusiasm for the gospel. As I said, the results at Athens were kind of meager, uh, but the church does continue there. And he has gone toe to toe with the intellectuals. Now he comes to the church at Corinth. If you kept your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, let's read verses 1 and 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that enough to change the world? Well, apparently Paul thinks it is. Is that enough to change the most pagan city it known at that time? Paul believes it is. He believes that the gospel is enough. No shows, no fancy uh, rhetoric, simply the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what Paul doesn't say is we. Paul never leaves Christ just crucified. He always goes, to the resurrection as well so this is the message that Paul is going to take to the Corinthians there's only one problem here Paul's broke okay from what we can tell he doesn't have a denarii to his name he has nothing now Paul was a the Greek literally says a worker in leather which we translate as a tent maker now every young rabbinical student of that day growing up was trained in a trade so that when he would finish his schooling and go out, he did not have to rely upon, um, the same types of things as the rhetoricians of the day. Now there were these people who were, you know, all they did was was travel from town to town and they would debate philosophical topics and they would uh, talk about the new things that were going on uh, in the surrounding area and they would kind of put their hat out. Like if you went to the subway and there was a guy playing a guitar and he would leave his case open and you would walk in after, as he played and, and throw some money in, uh, appreciative of his works. Well, the rhetoricians did that and they were kind of... Uh, traveling and, and talking and, and receiving donations and support and and rabbinical students were to have a trade so that they would never have to do that so that they could present their message without cost and and paul does that and he applies it to the christian gospel and he talks other where, other places where he says i never asked for anything I, I came to you only with the gospel but paul his his trade as he grow, grew up was a tent maker so he comes and he finds naturally other tent makers. Verse two, a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, with his wife Priscilla. So he meets them, and because they're in the same trade, they begin to work together. And he stays at their place. Eventually, uh, we must assume that they come to Christ because they're mentioned several other places as great believers and workers for the gospel. Uh, during this time, they they come to Christ. And every Sabbath, Paul, would, he would work in the week and then the Sabbath he would go to the synagogue and he would do his normal thing. He would reason with them and, and talk to them and, and make the transition from the things of the Old Testament into the gospel of Christ. Now, during all this, he's concerned about the other churches. This, this weight bears upon him. The church at Thessalonica, uh, all throughout Macedonia, he is concerned about these places where he's been and preached the gospel and he's waiting to hear uh, what has gone on now you have to understand paul is put on a lot of miles this is his third journey he has faced a lot of hardships he has been beaten uh, i'm sure his body is physically at uh, performing at a, a lower level than it was before this is uh, uh this portion paul is probably in his 50s uh and so uh for new testament times and the abuse he has taken he is getting up there but that you know doesn't stop him But we might get an idea that Paul is feeling a little bit discouraged. He comes to this place, he doesn't have a dime, so he's got to start work, and He can't devote himself full time to ministry. And his friends, he's left in Athens, and suddenly they show up. Silas and Timothy arrive, and they bring good news to Paul. Hey, the churches in Macedonia are happening, they're growing, things are going great, and look what we've brought. Your favorite church, the church at Philippi, has collected an offering and gives it to you. So what this means is Paul can stop his tent making and devote himself completely to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. But no sooner does he do that, look at verse 5. Then he runs into trouble. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And they resisted. Okay, This is what you've been waiting for all your life and they don't like it they resist it this is what they have been studying about this is what they've been looking forward to and Paul says this individual Jesus the Christ is the Messiah and they hate Paul because he brings that message so this is where we see that now none of us have ever done this none of us have ever reached this level in our lives and finally said okay I'm done with you I'm leaving this is what Paul does Verse 6, and when they resisted, and, and not just resisted, but they blasphemed, they blasphemed. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is a, uh, this is a physical demonstration, okay? If you remember in the Old Testament, when they were mourning, what would they do with their clothes? rip their clothes or they sit in sackcloth and ashes put ashes on their head as physical signs of the emotional distress going on within them. Well, Paul takes his robe off and he goes like this and shakes it out and says I'm done with you. I'm getting you remember they go to go to a town if nobody believes brush the stuff brush their dirt off your sandals and move on. This is what Paul does. He says finally I've had enough. Okay, you've heard the truth and you don't want to believe. Let me give you a quote from Matthew Henry. Many of the Jews, indeed most of them, persisted in their contradiction to the gospel and would not yield to the strongest reasoning nor the most winning persuasions. It says they opposed, they blasphemed, and the Greek says basically they set themselves up in battle array. So almost uh, uh, get the image of soldiers who are ready for a battle. This is what the Jews do against Paul. They can't, they're not interested. They are, in fact, going to drive him out. Well, to justify their infidelity, still Matthew Henry quoting, they broke out into downright blasphemy, and Paul herein declared himself discharged from them. They were left to perish in their own unbelief, in their own unbelief. Paul says, I've done my part. I'm clean from your blood. He had, he says, like a faithful watchman, given them warning and thereby had delivered his soul, though he could not prevail to deliver those theirs. They would certainly perish if they persisted in their unbelief, and the blame would lie where? Not on Paul. Paul says, I've done it. It's on your head. It is on your head. Your blood be upon your own heads. You will be your own destroyers. You alone shall bear the consequences. You would think if anything would frighten this crowd, that would be it doesn't seem to affect them at all now God is faithful again and again and again from the very first pages of Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation but if you remember the the parable of the great banquet and you've got the king and he he prepares this banquet and he sends out invitations you know it's the save the day kind of thing uh, that you might get for for a wedding that's coming up save this date and he sends it out and the date comes about and everything is prepared and nobody shows up so he sends his servants out. He says, go go and get these people. And, and, oh, they're too busy, and I've got a new wife, and I've got a new field, and I just can't make it. So the king sends out into the streets. Find the people on the street and bring them in. If the people I've invited will not come, then we'll go out and find some others because I've got this fabulous banquet prepared, and my people will come to it. And that's the same type of thing that is going on here. The message has gone out. They close their ears to it. Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to the Gentiles. Well, the Lord opened quite a few opportunities for Paul. Now, he can no longer be in the synagogue. So where does he go? He is invited, verse 7, to the house right next door to the synagogue. He departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, that would be a a Gentile who was in the synagogue, and uh, pursuing God as he understands it, it. He hears Paul preaching the things of Christ, and so he believes there. And now he invites Paul over into his house to continue the ministry. And his house is what next to the synagogue, good location. And then what else happens? Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. We have to understand how significant the conversion of Crispus is culturally. This is not just some other guy. Crispus is the leader of the synagogue. It would be as if um, you you went down to to the local uh, Islamic center and the, the imam converted to Christianity. I mean, it is a cultural shock that he would leave the synagogue, and now follow Christ. But his heart had been opened, he is responsive, responsive to the word, and he follows Christ in the teachings of Paul. And the Lord said to Paul, now, verse 9, you might think that he's, he's struggling a little bit. He's got all these weights upon him. There are some good things, but the Lord reminds him here, do not in a dream, do not be afraid any longer, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Here we come to the faithfulness of God in particular as we look at this. So I have four ways that have found that God is faithful in here. I'm sure that there are there are others. Uh, four ways in which we find that God is faithful. First, God is faithful in his raising up of other co workers for paul priscilla and aquila in the first four verses here as i said they're listed frequently in the new testament as great workers for christ and great servants and paul is also meeting in the home of tisius and crispus is there now paul even might be a little downcast and a little tired physically but he sees the lord raising these people up to come alongside him and to help him and to serve now, when we think we might be all alone, the Lord is raising up those people around us. Which uh, prophet was it uh, who battled uh, uh, the Baal worshipers and battled Jezebel? And uh, there he is up in the mountain after he's uh, destroyed the, after the Lord has destroyed the 400 prophets of Baal. And he says, I'm the only one left, Elijah. I'm the only one left. And the Lord says, no, you're not. I've got 7,000 that have not bent the knee to Baal. You're not alone. The Lord is faithful. He doesn't leave us out there on our own. And This is what Paul is experiencing here. He's raising up important co-workers with him for the work of the gospel. So secondly, God is faithful in that he provides funds for the work. Look at verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia Paul began devoting himself completely to the word why was he able to do that well we see in other places that this offering from the Philippian church arrived now it's certainly not wrong for people to ask uh, for support Uh, I forget the number of missionaries that that this church supports or uh, beyond that what you might support individually um, but that's how the gospel goes out. People who don't have the gift for missions but have the gift to uh, work and, and create income and, and resources, they give to those who take the gospel and plant churches. Now, all of us are required to put our entire lives into the hands and trust of the Lord. Now, there's a pastor, you, you may have uh, heard him on the radio or TV, and, and in one of his books, he tells a story when he was still living at home and his brother who was a missionary and his family arrive and they're going to stay at at mom and dad's house and um, while they're there um, you know they're they're talking about all the things that they're doing and one night at dinner dad who was a very matter of fact and and he didn't like this living on the edge stuff uh, he finally can't take it anymore and he looks at his son the missionary and says son i've seen your car it's ratty i've seen the tires they're all bald uh, how are you doing this he says i can't take it anymore uh, how much money do you have empty your pockets let me see how much money you have and 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 the son says dad you really want to see how much money i have He says, like yes i want to see how much money you have he reaches in his pocket and he takes a quarter and he rolls it across the table at his dad and you can imagine dad is now just about apoplectic with this and the boy goes isn't it exciting we have to trust god for everything and, and the pastor, who's who's writing the story about his brother, says, that, that stuck with me forever. I mean, you can't imagine the amount of faith that it takes to do that. But it's exciting to live out there. You know, I don't know any missionary that's fully funded. They want to get to the field as soon as they can because the Lord has called them to go and do the work of sharing the gospel. Number three, God is faithful to bring converts. He is faithful to bring converts. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8 again. And Paul, when they resisted, he shook out the garments, says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, Titius, Crispus, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, that is the gospel of Christ, were believing and being baptized. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this time. Now, many Gentiles from this city, whose focus was basically sin, were coming to the things of Christ. Their lives were being changed. And Paul has to remind them what type of people they were at one point. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. How many times, you know, if you've been a believer for a long time, do you ever find yourself looking at somebody who might be, you know, not a believer or might be a new believer and say, can't you get it together? Don't just, can't you get out of that lifestyle? Can't you get away from that sinfulness? And you begin to think that, you know, look at me, I, I'm not in that, it doesn't affect me. Uh, but Paul is reminding this crowd, but such were some of you. And, and you have not been removed from that long, in that long of a period, from that type of lifestyle he could probably name some names and say you remember you used to go up to see the temple of aphrodite on a regular basis you used to be involved in those things he said but you were washed in the blood of christ you were cleansed your sins were washed i hope that you on a regular basis look for opportunities to share that message with others because we were just like him we were lost We were hopeless until the things of Christ were revealed to us, until our eyes were opened. We were just like them. We were involved in the same behaviors, the same attitudes. But then Christ came and changed us. That is the power of the gospel. That is the miraculous. You say, well, I've never seen a miracle. Are you a believer? Yeah, then you've seen a miracle. Because you were once dead, and now you were made alive in the things of Christ. That is a miracle miraculous number four god is faithful to confirm his presence his protection and his purpose his presence his protection and his purpose back in acts 18 verse 9 and the lord said to paul in the night by a vision do not be afraid any longer apparently paul had been afraid But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And Paul spends the next year and a half at Corinth. Okay, In the past he's gone in, he's preached the gospel, there's been a ride, he's been chased out of town. The Lord says you're going to be here for a while. Why? Because I have many people here. Not that Paul, I've got a lot for you to do. He doesn't say it that way. The Lord says, I have many people people here in this city the lord says i have many people in this city don't be afraid don't be silent go out and preach the gospel why because i have many people in this city they belong to him all they need is to hear the gospel how will they believe unless they hear the gospel when they hear the gospel their hearts will be changed and they will forever be made different Paul gets six visions in Acts, all at critical times when he is feeling low and needs a little push. This one is such a fantastic push. What if the Lord came to you tonight and said, I have many people who belong to me in Huntsville. Go and preach the gospel. They're mine. All they need for their lives to be changed is for you to tell them about Jesus Christ. There are many people that belong to the Lord in Huntsville that have not heard the gospel yet. The Lord is simply waiting for their lives to be changed when we take the gospel to them. Throughout Scripture, we see these words: "Do not be afraid." When Joshua is going to take over for Moses, the Lord says, "What? Don't be afraid, Joshua. I've got a plan for you." When Elisha and, and is surrounded by uh, the Assyrians, the Lord says, "Elisha, don't be afraid." When the disciples are in the boat and it's the middle of the storm, Jesus gets up and says, "Don't be afraid." Okay? When the women race to the tomb, he says to them what? Don't be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. I am with you. Verse 10, that is Old Testament language. Paul understands that. That is the covenant God who does not change, who says, I am with you. And while you are there, many of my people will come to believe. When the Lord is with you, when the Lord surrounds you, when he sustains you, what harm can befall you what terror can come at you at night, okay Paul, don't be afraid because I, the sovereign Lord, am with you, and I have many in that city who will come to Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, this should be a great encouragement to try to do good since God has among the vilest of the vile, the most reprobate, the most debauched and drunken, an elect people who must be saved. They must be saved. When you take the word to them, you do so because God has ordained you to be the messenger of life to their souls, and they will receive it. For so the decree of predestination runs. They are as much redeemed by blood as the saints before the eternal throne. They are Christ's property, and yet perhaps because they are lovers of the alehouse and haters of holiness, but if Jesus purchased them, he will have them. God is not unfaithful to forget the price which his son has paid. He will not suffer his substitution to be, in any case, an ineffectual dead thing. Tens of thousands of redeemed ones are not regenerate yet, but regenerate they must be. And this is our comfort when we go forth to them with the word of God. God will have his own. They are waiting to hear the gospel. God is always faithful. What are we afraid of? Let's pray. Lord, we we are reminded again and again in your word of how you are faithful. How you are faithful, not always in the way that we want you to be. Not always in the way that fits our agenda, but in the way that fits your purposes. And Part of this growth and the things of Christ is to understand that, that We have to put our will on the side and trust in yours. For when you call us to something, you are faithful to bring it to completion. Whether it is the salvation that you place in our hearts, you will bring it to completion on the day of your return. Or whether it is a work that you lay before us, or whether it is a a purpose, something small that might be at home or at work or uh, in our neighborhood, or whether it is some large calling that you place on our lives to go and to do, you are faithful because that's your work. We're just a part of it. We're the instrument that you have chosen to complete it. Lord, help us to see in our lives what you are calling us to do and that you remind us that you are faithful. The little things, the medium things, the mundane things, the big things, your character does not change. Help us to grow and to mature that we might be made complete in the things of Christ and that our trust would be completely in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.